This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. and welcome to a new episode of Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lale Arakoglu. Hello. We are both back from vacation and joined by a very special guest whose latest book, Matrix, traveled with each of us on our recent trips. To chat all things travel, books, and more, we have Lauren Groff, author of Fates and Furies and Florida, an amazing short story collection. We've talked about her books many times on the podcast and are so excited to be finally sitting down with her. Thank you so much for joining us. I am delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, So Riverhead's lovely, lovely Jin Dilling Martin gave us a glimpse of what to expect from Matrix on a recent episode. But now that it's officially out, we want to ask, what is this book about? And what do you hope readers take away from it? Starting with a small question. (laughs) (laughs) So Matrix is about a 12th century abbess uh, who becomes Marie de France, who is an actual historical figure. She wrote a a bunch of poems called Lay, which are really exciting, I would say, fantasy, like short stories in poetry form. Uh, And she, she, we don't know much about her, right? Because uh, women at the time were not necessarily all that interesting unless they birthed kings or they were married to kings or they were the daughters of kings and we don't know who Marie de France actually was. So um, it was my way of uh, grappling with some contemporary issues but also being able to do it slant. Uh, I felt like the, the world in which I was writing was so overwhelming with so much going on that I wasn't able to do it justice at the time I tried to sit down to write. So this is my, my way of um, trying to trace some of these contemporary issues all the way back to their roots. Having Marie be based on a historical figure, but her life essentially from start to finish be written in this book um, was so fascinating. How did you decide to choose her? I uh, was in love with her. So I uh, was a a French literature major, an English literature major in college. And uh, I took two tutorials in Ancien Francais, which is like old French. And uh, I did some translations then and just sort of fell head over heels in this, in love with this idea of um, courtly romance, which is in many ways in opposition to a lot of the narrative frameworks that were prevalent of the age. So, um, Courtly love is this complicated idea where you hold one person so far above you that you can never, ever 
come up to their level, right? They're, they're always this like mystical figure sort of draped in mist. Um, and um, I thought it was such an interesting, almost um, subversive way to be in a world that was dominated by a really patriarchal, really hierarchical, really um, intense uh, Christian Catholic church. Um, it, it was almost um, a relief valve in some ways. So uh, I just loved her and I've thought about doing something with her for a really long time. I actually wrote a couple of uh, translations of the lay. They never really became what I wanted them to be. Um, but then two decades later, uh, I just, she's just sort of exploded in my brain as the person that I wanted to spend time with. One thing that is so apparent so quickly in when reading Matrix is that it is a cast of women characters. What was it like to be able to dedicate so much page space to women's conversations and women's interior lives? It was, um, I mean, the secret joy of my life. This book was written in the middle of the Trump presidency. Um, I was so tired of men yelling at me all the time. Men, you know, you get into the car, you turn on NPR, and there's like this angry man who reminds you of your eighth grade math teacher gave you nightmares yelling at you. I mean, it's horrendous. So, um, and I live in a house full of men. It's just also awful, right? Like my two children and my husband, and they're just too many men. So I, I wanted to live among women, but I also wanted to do something maybe a little bit slyer, um, which is to, to write the book the way that the vast majority of books have been written, but by men, um, which is making women characters into barely perceived entities, kind of misty entities at the corner of perception as opposed to actual characters. <laughs> so <laughs> I, mean, I can only do that in a woman's abbey, right? And, and only by actually playing around with um, paternity and ideas of the priests and Murray taking over a lot of the functions of the priests that she kicks out. Um, so it was just joyous, right? It was just really like, this was um, my friends when uh, Donald Trump was elected, we used to make these jokes about creating our own uh, lesbian separatist island somewhere where we just walk around naked all the time um, and there are no men allowed. Uh, so this is my way of doing a lesbian separatist utopia. What environment do you create for yourself when you're writing to help create like both a sense of place in your book and like space for you to be able to end up with a book that you really like? Yeah, so uh, I get up in the middle of the night when nobody else is awake. I think this is really, really important for me. I get up every day at five, I make coffee, I go up to my room, and I'm still sort of dreaming. It takes me a long time to wake up. And so uh, I think if you start writing in the middle of a dream, your work is going to be less constrained by your conscious mind, right? Um, you're just going to be able to flow a little bit um, more quickly into the, the work at hand uh, and to sort of embody maybe the dream logic that um, you kind of want. And so I, this is what I do. I create darkness around myself. I sit there with my notebook in this little beam of light with my coffee and, and I just sort of try to seep myself in the the place in the world where I am. I surround myself with images from the time. Images um, that are sort of inspiring too. I think I, I went to uh, this 
incredible art exhibition by uh, Hilma of Klimt um, at the Guggenheim. It was the most extraordinary thing. She was this mystic in the 20th century and she made these huge, very colorful um, canvases. And they, um, they were very, very mystical. She was, she was spoken to by the spirit. So she, she had this group of women who were de femme or the five, she was a Swedish woman. And uh, she became sort of the painter who was translating these ideas that the spirits gave her uh, <laughs> into this incredible body of work. And I don't know if you saw it, but it made me just weep. Um, I, I went, I cried, I was profoundly moved in a way that was ineffable. And so I put over my desk a couple of Hilma Klimt um, uh, posters and tried to sort of reach for that feeling again. So you have to surround yourself with with beauty or ideas or uh, images that correspond to the work at hand. Talking a little bit more about creating that sense of place in your own environment and then in your writing, I feel like all of your books share that. Talk a little bit more about what helps inspire you to create these like immersive settings and kind of this world building. And how do you think travel and moving around the world has played a role in that creative process. So the beautiful thing about writing is that nothing comes out of nothing, right? So you have to actually keep filling the well and keep um, gathering imagery, gathering experience, gathering understanding of other people in order to keep writing. Um, there's not a single point at which you have enough for a life of <laughs> literature. Um, so for me, traveling is incredibly important um, to, in order to get into the space, right? I've never lived in the 12th century, right? I don't actually know what it's like. Uh, so I would have to do a huge amount of research, which is a kind of travel. But also I do travel research with most of my books. In this book, I went to this Benedictine uh, Abbey in Connecticut, which was amazing. It's called Regina Laudis. And the Benedictines, they're, they're incredible. Um, Part of their code is that they have to give hospitality to people who come to them. Uh, and so they have these guest houses. And in fact, this may be a subject for another one of your podcasts where people just go from one Benedictine Abbey to another one. Um, but uh, in Connecticut, in Regina Laudis, they have this beautiful, gorgeous little house they welcome you, they feed you bread that they made that day and cheese and soup. Um, and you get to work with the nuns, right? And these are the nuns who are in enclosure, which means that they're, they're kind of severely limited from the world. They, they work with each other um, and the guests are invited to come work in the gardens. And so my job when I was working with them, it's this November at some point, and um, I was in the garden, I like, was ripping up all the old plants in the garden. And then uh, the next day we went out and we were splitting wood. And there was this, I want to say 89 year old nun who was just like the smallest human, probably five feet tall, maybe 80 pounds, who was splitting wood faster than I've ever seen a human being split wood in her life. Like she just, the whole force of her being was put into this wood splitting. So that experience went into the book also. And then when you finally gathered everything that you need, um, I like to do this kind of meditation before starting a scene where I just sit and I blank out everything, uh, close my eyes, 
and slowly go through each of the senses for the scene that I'm trying to to evoke. So first, I for me, um, auditory the auditory sense is the the first one to come. So I listen, right, and I listen into the scene, and I try to hear as much as possible. And back in the 12th century, there were more birds, right? So you you listen to more bird song. And then you slowly go into touch and smell and taste and everything. And finally, what, what, you're, what, what I'm doing then is I'm actually um, almost becoming an animal. And the way that we, as humans, we forget this often, but the way as humans we, we think is that we take in sensory information first and then quickly or slowly, depending on who you are, we process it and then it becomes idea, right? So if you just steep yourself in sensory information, if you become an animal and if you respond to the world as an animal, you can eventually create something um, that leaps from the animal into the idea, to, into the human. I have to ask, when you were spending all this time with the nuns, did they know you were working on a book? They did. Actually, they, they were so wonderful. They, um, they would sit me down and I would sit there and ask the dumbest questions, right? It was basically <laughs> like, like from the beginning, I was like, so what is the Benedictine code, right? And, or like, so tell me, what are you thinking when you go to mass five times a day? <laughs> right? um, and they would let me go sit and, and listen to these masses, which is uh, sung, acapella sung, chanting done the same way they would have done it in the Middle Ages, right? So in some ways, um, their lives are not that different, even though they do have computers, right? And they do get, um, if they go to, they have an abscess, they go down to the dentist, right? Um, But at the same time, there's a very strong link to the past with them. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforests of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. When you think back to previous books that you've written, obviously this trip to visit the nuns and the art exhibit were major influences for this book, but for Fate and Furies or Florida, what were the trips or things out in the world that really stand out as like, oh, this trip really like kickstarted that or led me to think about this book in a different way? Yeah, um, my... Um honeymoon trip to Argentina and Brazil actually gave me two stories. One was in Florida and the other one was in uh, Delicate Edible Birds. This is my first story collection. Um, The one in Florida is called Salvador and the one in Delicate Edible Birds is, I'm not remembering anymore, The Wife of the Dictator. Um, Neither of them are about a, a newlywed, but the places sank so deeply in and the way that I felt about those places actually took, um, five to 10 years to sort of process why I was feeling so, so profound about them. In um, Ypor in Florida, uh, that was kind of modeled on an actual trip that I took with my two very young sons uh, to Normandy, to Ypor in Normandy, which is uh, this tiny little town near where Guy de Maupassant was born. And we rented a house, uh, but they were six and four and I went alone. Um, and it was very cold. Normandy in the summer is incredibly cold and the beaches are full of rocks, right? So it's like not even comfortable beaches. Um, and I had no one to sort of take over and watch the boys if I just wanted like a, like a glass of wine out. So I was slowly going mad <laughs> in, this, in this Airbnb that was insufficiently cleaned. And so my OCD kicked in and I was just like cleaning the entire time. It was, uh, it was, it was fun. Um, Arcadia, I went to stay at Oneida. I don't know if you know about Oneida, but it's in upstate New York. It is a former, back in the um, 19th century, a utopian religious commune um, where in some ways they were way more advanced than um, a lot of people even today. They're all vegetarian, men and women were equal. At the same time, uh, everyone was supposed to sleep with everyone else in, in the Oneidan community, uh, which caused immense problems, particularly when there were 60-year-old men sleeping with 12-year-old girls, right? And so it was a disaster. So you can actually go up to Oneida and stay in the mansion house and, and sort of let the ghosts uh, pass through you as you're sleeping. Um, yeah, every book has an element of travel in it now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, it's important uh, to to get to feel the place that you're writing about, to sort of feel it all the way down. This feels like a question that I f- feel like I've asked too many people too many times on this podcast, but yet it still feels relevant, which is, you know, talking about the importance of travel um, obviously, the last year and a half has been quite absent of that or, you know, at least absent of international travel. How have you been seeking out those experiences or trying to find that kind of sense of reward? Well, uh, during the pandemic, I actually spent probably 
oh god, a hundred hours looking up Montreal real estate and uh, <laughs> trying to figure out my my two weeks in Montreal that I wanted to take this past summer before things closed down again and it didn't happen. Of course, Canada being full of smart people closed their borders to us for a very long time. But there were I had the restaurants I wanted to go to. I had the places that I wanted at the festivals I wanted to, you know, I, w- I was really excited about Montreal. Um, but also I did in the six week window that we had to travel, uh, I got to go to Italy, to Umbria, to Civitella Ranieri, which is this incredible artist's uh, residency um, in this 14th century castle, I think. And um, it's full of ghosts talking about ghosts, but they also have the chef who makes um, Cucina Povera, which is you know like the incredibly um, rustic but beautiful food, uh, dependence on the garden, the orto, and it was like just the most extraordinary thing. Uh, and then as soon as I got back, everything started closing up again. But um, that was that was a very weird moment to be honest, because I nobody had traveled, and we were all feeling immensely hedonistic. And the only way to sort of express these feelings of hedonism, even though it's a writer's colony and yeah, generally they're pretty, pretty awful. But I was with a lot of people who um, were actually quite well behaved. Um, The only way to express these feelings was through ping pong, drinking wine and eating too much gelato, which is not a problem. (laughs) But like I kind of wanted to see people like blow up their marriages. Right. And like have (laughs) incredible affairs. And it just didn't happen. Something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast is that any book that you read can be a great beach read. And I took Matrix to the beach with me, and it certainly served as a great beach read. Um, When you think about books that you like to take on vacation, what are your favorite beach reads? Um, I'm going to tell on myself because this is actually me being such a jerk in college. But uh, on my senior year spring break, my friends and I went to Key West, which is lovely. It's the perfect place for spring break. Um, but I took Infinite Jests by David Foster Wallace, which is so stupid. But it was the best spring break book, right? Because you feel like you're hungover while you're reading it already before you're even hungover. And so sitting out by the pool and reading this book while you're hungover, it just it like intensifies the feeling that David Foster Wallace already creates. Uh, so that was awesome. That was really wonderful. I think you're right that any book is a beach read. I, um, I think I read El Nefronte on the beaches here in Florida in, um, near St. Augustine, Crescent Beach, which is this beautiful, flat, pale, white beach. Um, which would be much better if people weren't allowed to drive on it. But since it's Florida, people have to drive on it. I was about to say, it. there's, it's Florida, so. <laughs> <laughs> With, like, their awful music and their giant trucks and, you know, Confederate flags, pew, pew, pew. Um, so that's not great. Uh, but it would be great if they weren't allowed to. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I read all of Elena Fronte's Neapolitan books on the beach uh, there. And so that those books actually feel very beachy to me because they're immersive and um, the language is just interesting enough to keep your eyes off the, the ocean and to, to keep you sort of deep in, in the world that she creates. I also feel like her books are hot to me. Yes. Like, yes. So sitting on a beach just makes sense because you are hot. The books are hot. 
everything is hot. (laughs) (laughs) Also, the U.S. covers with the pastels sort of um, scream betrayed, which... I am on record for saying I'm not a fan of them, but I can I can see why uh, they were chosen. I am forever fascinated by those covers. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> Your book is one of many amazing books written by women that are set to come out this late summer, fall, through the end of 2021. Are there any books that you are very excited to read or have already read but are excited to finally come out um, this year that our listeners should check out? There's so many. There's so many that I'm going to forget some and I feel uh, apologetic in advance, right? Um, So the one that I'm most excited about because I think she's in my great trinity of living writers is uh, Joy Williams's Harrow, which I find, I mean, I think everything she writes is astonishing and weird and and ecstatic in, in the greatest way. So I, I cannot wait to read that one. Um, Elif Shafak has a new book out that I haven't read yet, and I love her. Um, Sarah Hall, who's this uh, British writer, has a book called Burnt Coat coming out that I'm really, really, really excited about. Let me see. Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, Vanita Blackburn has a short story collection called How to Wrestle a Girl. Oh, and I'm going to forget everything else. Please forgive me. No, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty great starting point. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Lauren's latest novel, Matrix, is out now. So be sure to stop by your local bookstore to pick up a copy. If people want to keep up with you on the Internet and what you are up to and future books and future travel, where can they find you online? I'm only at Twitter. And I have a website, too, called laurengroff.com. But I'm at Twitter. It's Ellie Groff. But please don't take me seriously there. People make a lot of mistakes when they take me seriously because I'm just making jokes. Really, honestly, I'm not being serious. Amazing. You can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor. And me at Lale Hannah. Be sure to check out Women Who Travel on Instagram and subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter. Both of those links will be in the show notes, as will links to buy Lauren's book, check out the books that she mentioned, probably check out the Benedictine nuns. Uh, Those will all be in the show notes. Be sure to check them out, and we'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshveg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.